what do we do in anesthesia? What is it that we're doing? When you, when you come in and you have to have a surgery and you have an anesthesiologist or a nurse anesthetist or both, what are we doing? Let's talk about that today. The word anesthesia or is, is nebulous to begin with. What is, what does, oh, to give you anesthesia, what does that mean? It's not any one thing, it's a constellation of things. And anesthesia can mean different things in different settings. Anesthesia can be a person. Hey, anesthesia, come here. You know, trying to get an anesthesiologist over to get, you know, get their attention. Um, it can be a single medication. It can be local anesthetic that numbs something up. Oh, you got anesthesia. And, and because it's such a nebulous word, people that are particularly non-medical have a hard time understanding what it is that their anesthetic even was. I, it t totally depends on the procedure you're getting. That dictates what kind of anesthetic you will receive. So today I'll mostly, as kind of a prototype, I'll mostly be just talking about a general anesthesia. And what does that even mean? That's like too vague of a term. General an anesthesia is the word that we use for someone that really goes under, is totally out of it. That's, that's what you think of as the classic anesthetic. So when you show up for surgery for, say, you're having general anesthesia, maybe, here, let's talk about, maybe you're having a, well, let's say you have a tumor in your belly and, uh, and to be resected. So the day of surgery, you, you know, you, you get checked in, a nurse, a preoperative nurse gets you checked in by asking you a lot of safety questions, by maybe placing an IV, and that process is very important. There's a lot of safety measures that are put in that they, that they ask questions. I try not to interrupt that process. I try to make sure that preoperative check-in is done because that is, that is a safeguard to making sure a lot of things, um, you know, questionnaires and things like that, and that, that preoperative nurse, um, their evaluation is done properly and without interruption. So I do try to not interrupt that. Sometimes, I, sometimes you have to, um, but I try not to interrupt that process. And then you talk to your surgical team, and either you sign consent the day before or, or whatever in the clinic, or you sign consent that the day of, just depending on how your hospital does it. You must sign consent. You must be informed of the risks, benefits, and alternatives to your surgery. And, and you need to make sure you understand those things and all of your questions are answered. And if you're like, uh, I really want to talk to the surgeon one more time before I have surgery, ask. You Ask that. It's your right. It is your right to talk to that surgical team up until the moment you have that surgery, in my opinion. Um, so you get all your, your, you know, your questions answered and you get your surgical team to come. They usually do a site marking, like they'll come and sign the body part that they're doing surgery on. Anyway, and then you, you have an anesthesiologist or a nurse anesthetist come and talk to you. Either both or, or just one or the other. It just depends on what the, the anesthesia practice. And we come in and we ask you a varying degree of questions. We usually have you open your mouth. We look at your teeth. So the reason we have you open your mouth, you go, you know, have you open, we're looking for something called a malampati score, which is, uh, it's a score based on the back of your throat, uh, a visual inspection, and it gives us an idea of how, how difficult, how easy your airway might be to obtain. And when I say obtain your airway, I mean put in a breathing tube. Um, and it's not like the best exam in the world, it's, it's pretty uh, subjective. But it, gives you, it can give you some sort of idea. We look at the, the distance between your chin and your throat. We look at how, how far back you can put your neck, how far you can put your neck forward and backward. All of these gives us, give us a, a, like a general gestalt of like, oh, is this airway going to be easy to obtain? Meaning I just I can throw in a breathing tube from across the room, not, not literally. Or do I need advanced equipment to put in a breathing tube? And I'll talk about how we do that uh, here in a minute. We listen to your heart and lungs and we ask you other questions. Do you have, you know, what allergies do you have? I want to make sure I don't give you a medication that you've had an allergy to before a reaction to. That would be really bad if I wasn't, if I was, if it was documented and you knew it and I gave it to you. So I, I make sure you don't have any, and, and lots of questions get repeated. And 
And that's good. You know, if you, if you feel like you're getting frustrated answering the same questions over and over again, just be patient because that is a good thing. That's, that's another safe, safe check in place. I always ask every patient every single time, have you eaten or anything? Have you eaten or drinking anything in the last six to eight hours? And I know you've already been asked that like a thousand times, but I also want to know. I want to make sure. I want to make sure you don't aspirate gastric contents into your lungs when I send you off to sleep. Um, so we ask you whatever relevant questions there are maybe. And then we, and then we tell you, I always tell you what the plan is. Hey, we're going to do this type of anesthesia. I'm going to do this for your pain. I'm going to do this for nausea. Um, consent you for blood products if that's needed. Make sure that's okay with for you. And that's our preoperative exam. Now, if a patient is nervous, you can be nervous, and that's fine. And if you're okay going back to surgery, being being a little nervous, that's fine. If you don't want to be nervous, um, my my practice is a very low threshold to give something like a benzodiazepine. That's the same class of drug as like Xanax, except we give it IV. We usually give midazolam, but we can also give like um, lorazepam, which is Ativan or whatever. Um, a benzo is, is totally fine, and I'm happy to give that to anybody. That's my practice. If you are nervous, you can have that to take the edge off. Um, it hits the same receptors as like alcohol does, so it can make you feel tipsy. People can get this is where usually you know you get a lot of funny stories. People loosen up. They start saying things. They start saying they're you know hitting on staff or or you know just being 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 funny. That doesn't typically happen. Don't worry. You know don't worry about your behavior getting it. That's not like it can happen, but it's not a big deal. We see it all the time. Now, so that's fine if someone wants that. Now, if you've come from the emergency department and you're in pain and you haven't, you don't have enough pain medication on board, you should say, I need, I'm in pain, I need more pain medication. I will give that patient whatever you want. If you are in pain, I don't care what you're, if you have substance abuse disorder, whatever, you're, you are in, you're about to have surgery, you need, you, you, your psychological well-being is important, your physical well-being is important before you go back. And uh, as an anesthesiologist, I have a small window to get that, to foster that trust with you. You've never met me before, and you're meeting me for five minutes before you go back to surgery. So I want you to have, have trust and confidence in me and the team that's taking care of you. Not just me, but all the, you know, the circulating nurses and the scrub techs and everybody in that room, in that room that's taking care of you. And it, it takes, you know, small interactions that go the wrong way can really throw, throw things off. And there can be vast misunderstandings. That I don't even, I'm not even aware that ha- that are happening until after the fact. So it's important to speak your mind, advocate for yourself, and I I give patients whatever they need, whatever they want before I take you back, within reason, of course. Okay, so now we're gonna bring you back to surgery. Usually you get you get wheeled back in, in your the bed that you're already in. Well, you bring you back to the operating room. It's gonna be cold. The operating room is cold. It's cold for for equipment to function at, at appropriate levels, and it's cold. It's colder for staff. Um, because staff are working, particularly the surgical team. They're, they're under a lot of, um, uh, you know, sterile drapes, sterile, uh, I mean, you know, sterile, uh, what's the word, um, you know, gown, and they're working, and, and they, can get, they can get hot. Usually they're, they're the warm ones, and the rest of the staff is, is kind of cold in the room, to be honest. Uh, and that's fine. You know, your surgeons should be comfortable. They should be a, a, as much as they can be within reason while they're operating. And it's fine. You feel cold. We keep you warm, and we monitor your temperature. We keep you warm with a, with a, uh, in the states we call it a bear hugger. It's a uh, forced uh, air that goes under the special blanket that's warm air that circulates around your body, and we monitor your temperature. So we, and even when you're asleep, so we know. So if you come back and you're cold, don't worry. You're not going to be cold during the entire operation. And then if those things don't work, we do turn the room temperature up. And so if the surgeon gets hot, so be it. But 
Um, so you'll come in, it might be cold, and there's lots of, there's, there's t there might be talking. There's, we, we move you over to our surgical bed, which is a narrow bed, and we hook up our monitors. We hook up EKG stickers, and those are always cold going on. The room temperature, and it's always cold in your body, and it's like, ah, it feels like ice going on your skin, the EKG leads. We put on a blood pressure cuff, and uh, we put on a pulse ox on your finger. We get all those things ready to go. And then we bring a mask over your mouth and nose, and that smells like plastic because it's a fresh mask. We don't reuse those. Those are disposable. It smells like a beach ball, smell, whatever. It's plastic smelling. Put that over your mouth and nose. Now, it's, a, it's at this point, and we are going to deliver 100% oxygen to, to you, 100%. Right now, uh, I'm assuming you're, 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 not, you're, you're breathing 21% oxygen. That's room air. That's what you're breathing right now, 21%. We give you 100% oxygen, and we, we usually have you breathe that for about a minute or two. Now, why do we do that? It's very important. We call that pre-oxygenation. And the reason we do that is we, you are, so you're breathing 20%, 21% oxygen right now, right? But there's other gases in the air, mostly nitrogen, which is inert. So you're breathing nitrogen in and out of your lungs right now. And, and that nitrogen's not doing anything. It's inert. It's not doing anything. We denitronize your lungs. We get rid of that, that nitrogen and we replace it with 100% oxygen. The reason is we're about to send you off to sleep and, you're, and, and then put in a breathing tube. And there, you're going to be apneic. Apnea means you are not breathing because we paralyze your body. And we need a little time. Uh, you're going to be not breathing for a little bit while we uh, put, put a breathing tube in. And it's important to have that 100% of oxygen lo locked and loaded in your lungs because that gas exchange is still happening even though you're not breathing. So let me, let me just reiterate that. If we put 100% oxygen in your lungs and then you stop breathing, assuming you have a normal body habitus, um, and you don't have any lung disease, you can be apneic, not breathing, for up to seven or eight minutes without your oxygen saturation dropping. That, that's significant. Let me repeat that. You can, you can not, we, be, because we pre-oxygenate you with 100% oxygen, your body literally can be like a, a statue, not breathing, for seven to eight minutes, and the pulse ox on your fing finger, where we detect your oxygen, can be 100% that entire time. What that means is, we are building time for ourselves to put in a breathing tube. It's a safety margin so that you have plenty of oxygen circulating around your body while we are trying to put in that breathing tube. Because the fact is, maybe no one's looked at your airway before, and you might have a difficult airway, meaning it, maybe it takes a little more time, a little more extra equipment to put in a breathing tube. And we honestly don't know until we take a look. And it could take, oh, our first attempt, oh, that didn't work. Our second attempt, that didn't work. Uh, we need to bring in this other piece of equipment. That's usually not how it goes. But that's why we pre-oxygenate you, you while you're awake for about a minute or two with that mask. It's extremely, extremely important. So you breathe in that oxygen. And uh, assuming you've already had an IV placed uh, preoperatively, which is that's the norm, and you're an adult, we usually send you off to sleep with a medication through your IV. Um, for children, we will start an anesthetic gas through, the, through that mask and send them off to sleep that way. The reason we do that in children is kids usually don't like needles. Um, and so we send them off through the, we send them to sleep through a, through an anesthetic gas, usually something called sevoflurane, um, and maybe some nitrous oxide, which is laughing gas. We usually don't do that in adults. Why? Because it's not very pleasant. It's, it has a bad taste breathing in that gas when you're awake. That gas, it smells like nail polish, like bad nail polish. And, and that's how you fall asleep. It's not very pleasant. So we have you breathing just oxygen. There's no anesthetic gas in there yet. We turn it on later to keep you asleep. Um, and then we send you to sleep with, through your IV with medications. 
a typical thing that we give probably in the United States and other countries, we typically give a little IV lidocaine to, to start with. IV lidocaine blunts your fight or flight response a little bit. Um, so because we are about to put a breathing tube down in your vocal cords, that is extremely stimulating to your body. When's the last time you, uh, you know, accidentally water went down the wrong pipe? You, your body freaks out for a minute, right? You, you, have these, you have these primal impulses in your airway to, to get anything in your airway out because obviously that could kill you. So you're, you know, you're designed that way. So we try to blunt your fight or flight response when we come in and put a breathing tube in between your vocal cords. So lidocaine can help that. It also may numb up the IV a little bit uh, be, uh, before we give you propofol. Propofol can have a burning sensation as it goes into the vein. And it can be quite unpleasant sometimes for some people. And it's also random. Some people can feel it, some people do not. And I always warn patients that, hey, as I send you off to sleep, you may feel a burning sensation in your hand or your arm as in the IV. And I, uh, the most of the time, when people know that that's coming, it doesn't bother them. But when it's a surprise and they're falling off to sleep, they think that something is going wrong while they fall off to sleep. And that is a terrible feeling to think as you're falling asleep, oh my gosh, something wrong is going on. So as long as you're forewarned, hey, propofol might burn. It's usually not that bothersome. Some people, it really bothers them, but it's, not, it's, it's a little more rare. So we give lidocaine. Uh, sometimes we, and then usually you don't have to, but a little pr- uh, fentanyl up front as well sometimes. 50 mics, 100 mics. That also helps blunt the fight or flight response to just settle your heart rate, settle your nerves before we put in a breathing tube. Um, and then we give propofol. And then, we, and then we watch to see as you fall asleep. Propofol turns off your brain. Turns off everybody's brain in like 10 seconds. Propofol is a light switch in every human brain. It, you know, I get people every now and they're like, oh, I can fight it, oh, I'll, I'll count down for whatever. No, you're, you're gonna be asleep in five or 10 seconds. If you are a human being, you will be asleep. Um, it, it, it does work, we give you a big push of it up front and that, that makes you fall asleep. Now, I, I look to make sure you're asleep and we usually will like, uh, we'll ask you a question that's uh, to see if you're asleep. Usually we'll be like, are you warm enough? And if the person's asleep, they say nothing. Or they might be like, oh yeah, I'm warm enough. And I'm like, oh, they need, they need a little more. The reason I don't say, are you asleep yet? Is because that, that might be unsettling to the patient as they're falling asleep. They're like, oh, these people don't know what they're doing. They don't know if I'm asleep yet. So sometimes we'll ask, oh, are you warm enough? Or you know, something like that, it's a little less innocuous. And then the person says nothing. And then we, uh, you know, you, and then we rub the eyelash to see if they have a twitch, like an eyelid reflux, reflex. And if that's absent, this person is now asleep to give a paralytic. The re- I, I don't want to give you a paralytic before you have sedation because a paralytic does exactly what it sounds like. It paralyzes your entire body. It doesn't paralyze your heart or other um, you know, uh, vital organs, but it paralyzes your muscles. Um, and we, we make sure you are fully sedated before we, before we give you a paralytic because that would be awareness under anesthesia. If you have a paralytic before you, you have those sedatives, uh, you're going to have a very unpleasant experience. You're going to feel like you're... you're entombed in a you know the grave of your own body and that's a problem obviously so we avoid that so we make sure you're asleep and then we give you the paralytic and we have different paralytics we give we have succinylcholine vecuronium rocuronium they have different mechanisms i won't get into all that um but your your body gets paralyzed and then you are ready you're now the conditions are set to put in a breathing tube and so how do we put in a breathing tube we do it there's many different ways that we can do it sometimes we put a breathing tube through the mouth sometimes we put a breathing tube through the nose and we use different types of equipment. The, the basic equipment that we use is called a laryngoscope. It's, a, it's got a metal handle with a metal blade, a dull blade that comes off. And we put that, we open your mouth up, we put that blade in the back of your mouth, 
kind of move the tongue aside, we get a, a direct visualization of your vocal cords and we put a breathing tube in. That's called direct laryngoscopy. Direct, because you get a direct visualization. Another way is video laryng laryngoscopy, which is we put a, a similar kind of instrument in, but we get a, we broadcast a, a, the, a view of your vocal cords to a screen. Um, and we can put it that way. We can put it in with a fiber optic camera, where, which, which swivels around. We, uh, we thread this camera down, and we can get access to your vocal cords that way. Um, there's, there's many different variations and ways of doing it. If things are straightforward, you, it, everything is straightforward. Some things can go wrong during this portion. Someone can have an anticipated, unanticipated difficult airway. And we have backups. We, we know we're very good at knowing how to get a hold of someone's airway. So we put in the breathing tube. We confirm it's in the right place, and we hook you up to our ventilator. And then we look at the vitals. We are looking at your an EKG tracing, uh, telemetry tracing. We, we look at your blood pressure. We're looking at your pulse oximetry, how much oxygen is in your blood. And then we're looking at your carbon dioxide that you are breathing back out at us. And that's extremely important. We call that end-tidal CO2, end-tidal carbon dioxide. And that tells us that you are ventilating meaning we are, we are, the tube is in the right place because sometimes the tube can go into the esophagus. That's obviously bad, and that needs to be detected right away. And, and if it goes into the esophagus accidentally at the beginning, it's not a big deal. We just recognize it, pull it out, put it in the trachea. Um, the, and the end tidal CO2, you breathe out carbon dioxide continuously. So that helps us to know, detect if we are um, in the right place. And we, did, we are monitoring your end tidal CO2 the entire operation. And we're monitoring all these vitals of your entire operation. We're, mon we're measuring and dialing in the exact volumes, the exact pressures that we're putting into your lungs, um, and the exact co uh, um, oxygen content of, the, of the, the, the fraction of oxygen that's going into your lungs. All these things uh, have become quite automated. So we hook you up to the machine, put that machine on you know, kind of a mode of autopilot so that it's ventilating for you, and then we're off and running, and we can start surgery. Now, of course, you can have many different types of surgeries with this type of anesthesia. So... Everything can depend. There are, a lot, there are many things that can go wrong during an anesthetic. Um, there are many, many things. Fortunately, it is a finite number. And we are aware of all the things that can go wrong, and we know what to do in, in all those situations. You can have an airway problem, like we've talked about. You can suddenly go have a, an arrhythmia from something that, medication that's been given or um, a reaction to something. You can have anaphylaxis to something. Something can go wrong during surgery where... Uh, the surgeon, the surgical field gets a little too oozy with blood, and you lose blood. Sometimes you lose blood slowly. Sometimes you lose it really quickly. Um, there's just you're, you're, you can have a what we call a bronchospasm, where your airway, the conducting airways below the, the breathing tube, can start to kind of seize up, and, and we can't ventilate you very well. You can go, you can get septic during the OR. There's just there's many things. I mean, this this would take too long for me to describe all the things that can go wrong. Some things are common, some things are rare. There's something called malignant hyperthermia, which is extremely rare, um, where you have a bad reaction to, to the ga anesthetic gas or the drug succinylcholine, and it makes you hypermetabolic. All of your cells start, it's like a runaway, um, uh, like powerhouse in your cells, and you get hot, you get, you get overheated, you create too much carbon dioxide, you can go to kidney failure, and it can be extremely deadly, and it, it, you can kill, it can kill you. It is rare, um, and an anesthesiologist or a nurse anesthetist can go their entire career without this ever happening to a single one of their patients. Um, and it's genetic. Um, so if someone has it, you usually test their family.
anyway, there's just there's a lot of things that can happen during during the during the anesthesia. But as I said, it's statistically very safe. These things likely will not happen to you. And that's why you have an anesthesia provider to watch for these things. Even though we do have some things that are automated, you have human eyes on you the whole time watching. Silently, a lot of the time. And that's the, that's the thing about anesthesia. Sometimes it can be boring. And when we're bored, that's good. That means you're, everything's going fine. You know, when your anesthesia provider is bored, uh, not that they're inattentive, they shouldn't be inattentive, but if they're bored, things are going good. But things can go fast and go poorly really quickly, and, and we have to act very quickly to intervene and bring you out of that. And I think this is a good, this is a good uh, time to go into what is the difference between an anesthesiologist and a nurse anesthetist. I get this question on TikTok all the time, and I'm always hesitant to answer it because it can, my, I know my words can be uh, misinterpreted. So this is a good chance for me to explain my thoughts about this. So the scope of an anesthesiologist and a nurse anesthetist, the practice, is almost identical. Um, so there are, there's diff, obviously there's different training. Anesthesiologists go to medical school. <clears throat> nurse anesthetists do, you know, they're nurses and they're ICU nurses before they go to nurse anesthetist school. All are highly qualified and highly educated to uh, provide you anesthetic. Now, what a what a you know individual a nurse anesthetist or an, uh, is capable of is completely dependent on the state they work. <clears throat> the practice they work and their experience, but there are there are places where they they do basically what an anesthesiologist does, including procedures, nerve blocks, epidurals, things like that. Um, so there is you know there's kind of like a bell curve, right? So you have a bell curve of anesthesiologists, and on the left side there are anesthesiologists that maybe aren't very good at what they do, and on the right side there are anesthesiologists that are unbelievably good at what they do, and then right in the middle there's like the average, and then there's a bell curve of nurse anesthetists. On the left side there's nurse anesthetists that maybe are not very good, like they're for whatever reason, however, however you want to define that. And then on the right side, there's nurse anesthetists that are very good, and they're functionally anesthesiologists. So in my opinion, the bell curve is much tighter for anesthesiologists. On average, you're going to have much more capable and competent anesthesiologists than on average nurse anesthetists. I understand that might be a controversial opinion, and I could be wrong, but that, that is how I feel about that. But what is the ultimate difference between an anesthesiologist and a nurse anesthetist? And it's being an anesthesiologist is an expert in crisis management. I, I do believe the vast majority of anesthetics and surgeries that happen in the United States can safely be done by uh, just a nurse anesthetist. I, I, I do believe that. However, when you have higher complexity, meaning complexity of your operation, and you have much higher comorbidities, you should have an anesthesiologist that is either sitting that case directly or supervising that case. If you have a patient who is sick in the cardiac ICU on ECMO and their heart barely moves and now they're septic and they, have, they also have a pulmonary embolism um, and whatever other complications that can happen because of that and they come down the operating room because now they need a surgery, they have ischemic gut, like their bowel is now not, is dying and needs to be resected, something like that. It's, it is, if that is you or your loved one, you, you want an anesthesiologist to be present and making sure that that anesthetic and that surgery is happening as safe as possible. If a patient goes into cardiac arrest in the, uh, in the OR, it's probably better than an anesthesiologist is present to, to lead that code and to help get that patient safely through. Of course, a, a nurse anesthetist may be capable of that. I don't, I don't deny that. Um, but to, to put the patient first 
and to maximize that patient's outcome when you have higher complexity, higher comorbidities, and anesthesiologists should be there. And there's, there's been some studies that compare nurse anesthetists to anesthesiologists that the outcomes are equal. Um, those are very limited studies. And the vast majority of them are sponsored and made by the American Association of Nurse Anesthetists, so they're, they're highly biased. The ASA, which is the American uh, Society of Anesthesiologists, also made a study that said anesthesiologists' outcomes are better. So there's bias on both sides. The point is, none of these studies are robust, uh, robust enough to retrospectively look at something like that. Also, anesthetic populations are highly heterogeneous, right? So independent nurse anesthetist practices are, on average, going to have patients that are less complex and likely would do well whether they had an anesthesiologist or a nurse anesthetist to begin with. So the, the, that evidence, is, to me, is not really robust. Here's the good news. It, it doesn't matter. Um, everybody is needed. Anesthesiologists and nurse anesthetists, everybody is needed everywhere. There's a shortage of anesthetists everywhere. Everybody is needed to provide an safe anesthesia care. And don't get me wrong, I, I'm, uh, as an anesthesiologist, I do worry about credentialism and gatekeeping, um, you know, and, uh, and also inflating patients' costs by having an anesthesiologist present. I do worry about those things. I mean, obviously I'm biased talking about these things as an anesthesiologist, but those things are problems, and we should gatekeep as little as possible. I think, I think we should, the goal should be patient safety, um, that, that, and that's everybody's goal. Now, this is a good segue into, I don't know if it's a good segue, but I'm going to kind of uh, like do a right hard turn and try to do a segue here. I probably won't do it very well, but uh, this is a segue into power structures. I'm always fascinated about how power works, power structures, power hierarchy. Um, rather than trying to, I mean, I try to understand politically how things work, like within political movements or a political party. But if I, I feel like if you really understand how power works and how pi power hierarchy works, you begin to have a much better grasp about how the world actually functions. And you can actually recognize what's going on in the world and think a little bit more critically when you understand how, well power, how power structures work. I do kind of firmly believe that if, if there's an existing power structure that's in place, whoever or whatever is at the top of that power structure, their main goal, their incentive is to keep themselves within that existing power structure. Whatever else they say or claim or whatever they do, that's, their goal is to maintain power. Um, so you know that adage, you know, power corrupts absolutely. I do kind of believe is true. So to delve a little bit more into this, uh, I'm going to be discussing a book called The Divide, A Brief Guide to Global Inequality and Its Solutions. This book is written by Jason Hickel. I absolutely love this book. And uh, I'm going to boil this down to one sentence, this book. Poverty is manufactured. So there's this grand narrative in the Western world that we have achieved development, that we wait on the sidelines cheering on developing countries as they sputter and stall trying to become like us you know, like, like us grown-up countries. We try to help with grand acts of charity or developmental outreaches as these countries make their attempts to lift themselves from poverty um, enough to even feed their own populace. We like to believe that wealth and poverty are natural states and that the world exists in a state of this of equilibrium, natural equal, equilibrium. We publish like feel-good stories about how free trade and capitalism is actually lifted an enormous part of the global population out of poverty and hunger. And we cling to this story because it's the only way we can ignore the cognitive dissonance of the reality that the Western world was actually developed by impoverished countries. Jason Hickel completely tears down the narrative with more data, critical thinking, and brilliance that I've, I mean, I, that I've read before. He's, it's really amazing.
<clears throat> he brings everything together in this book and describes why the world is the way it is with such stunning clarity that it's really hard to deny his conclusions. First off, poverty is not a natural state. It's a human-made state, and it is by design. Rich countries aren't developing poor countries. It's poor countries that are developing rich countries. This good news narrative that free trade benefits everyone is developed out of statistical theater, bending and moving goalposts that don't account for depreciation of purchasing power and defining the poverty line at living at only $1.25 a day. This definition assumes that a person only requires calories to be sedentary. If a poor person suddenly gets up and burns calories, suddenly no one is lifted out of poverty by these ridiculous definitions. China actually accounts for the majority of improvement in poverty reduction, a country that doesn't necessarily participate in the classic free trade that people claim reduces poverty. This good news narrative, it's a complete falsehood, and it is at its best propaganda for Western countries to continue their vast global exploitation. Jason Hickel in this book takes us on a tour that starts at the age of colonialism and imperialism. This is when Western countries basically stole the startup capital and slave human resource labor that created the great divide that we see today. It kind of started with that. Precious minerals were stolen from South America and Africa. The West then created products to sell back to these countries while slapping these same countries with tariffs where they could never have a profitable tr trade balance. The original privatization of peasant land is what started wage labor and capitalism. When you can no longer provide food for yourself because land has been taken from you, your only option is to rent your labor and enter into the exploits of the you know, capitalistic system. So if we flash forward 1950s and 60s, we see a vast and deliberate destabilization of poor countries with, with any attempt to nationalize their own sovereign goods uh, that are currently in the, uh, the hands of American countries. In the name of, quote, free trade, the U.S. has destroyed democratically elected leaders and re replace them with crony capital dictators who will do the bidding of the corporate plutocracy. From the banana wars of the Caribbean, Latin America, Indonesia, Iran, Ghana, Congo, Brazil, the utter destruction of Chile's economy. America has destroyed nation after nation to protect corporate interests and maintain global dominance. That, that is a fact. I'm sorry. This, this, these are facts that I'm speaking. The wealth of the West has been subsidized by these countries. The New Deal proved that you, if you invest in, public, in the public, people can mobilize out of poverty and jumpstart jump the economy. New Deal era politics proved this. They were along racial lines, and they only uplifted white people out. I mean, they were racist. Um, but the, the legacy of the American middle class hinges on the success of a white apartheid socialism. So if someone, you know, an American doesn't think they've benefited from socialism, they, they don't know their own history from the New Deal era politics. And yet, when countless impoverished countries try to do the same exact thing, the U.S. fear-mongers with communist panic and then destroys these governments because they, take, they try to take resources out of the hands of U.S. corporations. This is the playbook, and it's happened over and over again since World War II. So, talking about power, here's who rules the world. Multinational American companies who hold 50% of the nation's wealth. A country with 4% of the population, the multinational companies Half of the multinational companies in the world are owned by, by, Ameri by, by Americans. The IMF, the International Monetary Fund, rules the world, the World Bank, and the World Trade Organization. The IMF and World Bank were formed under the guise of providing funds to poor nations in order to lift them from poverty. The reality is they basically provided subprime loans with interest rates so outrageous that they could never be paid. The kicker 
to this is that as a stipulation of taking loans, poorer nations can't nationalize or subsidize their resources as this was seen as an unfair advantage when it is the exact same thing that the U.S. does to its own agriculture, constantly undercutting the traded products on the global market. So the IMF and the World Bank basically drown poor countries in debt that they can never repay and take away, take away revenue that they could otherwise be invested back into their own public good. The IMF is a global debt enforcer. So, you know, you can ask, why do poor countries decide to take these loans? Well, it's because they face the very real threat of a covert or military coup of their leadership if they don't. Because it's happened. We've done it. NAFTA and the TTP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, were engineered to exploit labor in the U.S. and Mexico. NAFTA was a tool of multinationals to strip workers of their wages, their rights, and leave dispossession in their wake. Tax havens abound, forming a loop of wealth exploitation and hoarding, all while continuing the cycle of poverty and hunger in developing countries. So we need to look at systems and not symptoms, right? There are reasons countries are poor. It's not just corruption of their leadership or lack of free markets and entrepreneurship. It's because the West stole resources from the very beginning, creating the foundation of an inequitable system that they now control and operate with impunity. The double standards are real and they are unjust. The climate fallout disproportionately affects these victims. We need to stop focusing on the poison of maximizing GDP and understand that we cannot chase an exponential wave of consumption and growth. Basically, this book, which I'm talking about, that talks about all these things, is The Divide, A Brief Guide to Global Inequality and Its Solutions. Pick it up today. Read it. It's by Jason Hickel. You'll learn a lot. All right, that's enough of my commie nonsense trash talk, right? Because I'm just a commie. Uh, I'm joking, but anyway, that's, I know that's how a lot of people interpret things I just said, but that's fine. Um, so I'll an answer a couple of questions from my TikTok answer pay, uh, Q&A page that I can't always get to with video answers um, before we finish up this, this, uh, this week's podcast. Uh, let's see. This is a question from at T underscore Bo, Terry Bradley Morgan. Um, their question is, why does it seem like healthcare is about treating the symptoms rather than finding the root cause? And they say, oh, have a seizure? Here's a pill. So, I mean, this is kind of related to what I was just talking about. And I just ran, found this question at random. I haven't thought about it, so it's kind of serendipitous. Uh, you know, why, why does medicine feel like we're just treating symptoms rather than the root cause? And that is a, it's a great question. And I think it takes a really long and thoughtful, complex answer that I, I don't think I'm capable of. But you hear this a lot, right? Oh, why don't we focus on preventative care and primary care? And... I mean, it's obvious. It's not profitable, right? It's not profitable to focus on, on primary care. I mean, that's it. That's the answer. If you're a primary care physician or a primary you know, care NP and you're, you're, you're a family medicine doctor or whatever, and you're seeing patients and they have issues, uh, you know, health issues that put them at risk for disease, you don't get paid for that. You don't get compensated for the uh, time that you spend with them and uh, working at these problems that they have to, to, for preventative care. You get paid for the, the volume of patients you see. So obviously that's gonna financially incentivize providers to maximize who they're seeing and cut the, the time down as much as possible with each patient. So that's one aspect of that. That's one small aspect. 
let's talk about, you know, pharmaceutical R&D. <laughs> like, it's, it's, it's profitable to, to come up with, you know, patent a medication. Oh, don't even get me started about patent evergreening. I'll talk about that in another podcast. Um, but developing therapies for pathological disease states that could be, be preventable is much more profitable than actually, pre- you know, developing something that will prevent those diseases. And this, this kind of brings me to a point, you know, we say, oh, healthcare in America is terrible. That's, that's not a fair statement. And I, I've made that statement before, too. It's shorthand, but that's not a fair statement, right? The quality of healthcare in the United States is actually very good, right? We have cutting-edge technology. We have, you know, great medical schools and great training and, and, and incredible academic centers, right? World-class academic centers in the United States. And there's world-class academic centers outside the United States. So the actual, like, you know, interventions, the things that we could do are incredible, right? If you, you know, if you have a heart attack or you have a stroke or there's just so many things you come in, we can fix those things really quick. So we're really good at fixing high acuity situations where you're, where something has built up, someone's ignored a health problem for years and years and years and suddenly, um, you know, say they have a stroke. Uh, you know, we can, a lot, oftentimes we can fix that and reverse that and then send you home and charge you a lot of money for that and then you're back at home um so the when we say healthcare is you know is terrible what i mean is number one the delivery of the high quality healthcare that we have is awful the access to it is awful and then preventative care just like we're talking about it's not good we don't focus on it and it's because we live in a system where that is designed to maximize profits and it's just not very profitable you know when we're talking and thinking about these things i I would be reluctant to blame providers because we, we just work in this system. You know, we don't own this system. This is about public policy, and this is about having access to health care. And, you know, we can talk about universal health care on another podcast. I obviously will. Um, and the different solutions that there are for that. Universal health care is just like a, this umbrella term is kind of unfortunate because people think it means government-run health care, which it doesn't, mean, it doesn't need to mean that. There are many solutions, one of them being restrict and greatly regulate the private healthcare industry because they have unfettered power, monopolistic power, where they dictate. I mean, they're the overlords, right? Anyway, that was a great question. I, I, I could talk more about that. And there's many things I don't know, right, about, about this topic. All right, one more question from my Q&A from TikTok. This is from at Peru21229. Their question, uh, they, they said, I recently had surgery and the day after, I had muscle soreness in my abs and my chest, like as if I did a strenuous workout. Is this a normal thing? And, you know, I actually did a video answer for this, but it's such a good question. So remember, in, with, in this podcast I was talking about, we give you a paralytic. One of those paralytics is called succinylcholine. Well, the way that that paralytic works is it actually it, it makes all of your muscles contract at once. And it is, if you haven't seen it before, it's bizarre. It looks bizarre. Someone's on the operating table, and this is after you're asleep. We give it. You know, 10 seconds later, you're dancing, the, the person's dancing on the bed. All of their muscles are fasciculating, like going back and forth, jumping up and down. Nothing you could, you could control and do on your own. Well, all of that muscle contraction, it can make you sore. So it makes succinylcholine not the greatest drug. I, I try to avoid it. Sometimes we, sometimes we do use it, but um, there's not a whole lot of reason we have to use that drug anymore. That's, that's probably the reason this person had that muscle soreness. All right, anyway, I think I'll, sum, uh, I think I'll wrap it up uh, for this episode. So... Thank you for listening to the end if you're still here with me. Um, please give me feedback uh, about this podcast. I'm new. I'm not a professional podcaster. I've never really done this before. Um, so give me feedback on either on my email, which is 
uh, what is it? It's icudoctorecmo at gmail.com. icudoctorecmo, E-C-M-O, at gmail.com. Um, and then my TikTok handle is at icudoctor. My Instagram handle is icudoctortiktok. You can follow me or message me on there with questions. Um, and then if you like the podcast, share it with people, write a review wherever you listen to podcasts. And uh, yeah, see you next time. Thanks.